Chapter 5 of Ships That Pass in the Night This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy B. Ships That Pass in the Night by Beatrice Harridan. Chapter 5 The Disagreeable Man Robert Allitson told Bernadine that she was not likely to be on friendly terms with the English people in the cure-house. They will not care about you, and you will not care about the foreigners. So you will thus be thrown on your own resources, just as I was when I came. I cannot say that I have any resources, Bernadine answered. I don't feel well enough to try and do any writing, or else it would be delightful to have the uninterrupted leisure so she had probably told him a little about her life and occupation, although it was not likely that she would have given him any serious confidences. Still, people are often surprisingly frank about themselves, even those who pride themselves on being the most reticent mortals in the world. "'But now, having the leisure,' she continued, "'I have not the brains.' "'I never knew any writer who had,' said the disagreeable man grimly. "'Perhaps your experience has been limited,' she suggested. "'Why don't you read?' he said. "'There is a good library here. "'It contains all the books we don't want to read.' "'I am tired of reading,' said Bernadine. "'I seem to have been reading all my life. "'My uncle, with whom I live, keeps a second-hand bookshop.' and ever since I can remember I have been surrounded by books. They have not done me much good, nor anyone else either. No, probably not, he said. But now that you have left off reading, you will have a chance of learning something if you live long enough. It is wonderful how much one does learn when one does not read. It is almost awful. If you don't care about reading now, why do you not occupy yourself with cheese mites? I do not feel drawn toward cheese mites. Perhaps not at first, but all the same, they form a subject which is very engaging, or any branch of bacteriology. Well, if you were to lend me your microscope, perhaps I might begin. I could not do that, he answered quickly. I never lend my things. No, I did not suppose you would, she said. I knew I was safe in making the suggestion. "'You are rather quick of perception, in spite of all your book-reading,' he said. "'Yes, you are quite right. I am selfish. "'I dislike lending my things, and I dislike spending my money, except on myself. "'If you have the misfortune to linger on as I do, "'you will know that it is perfectly legitimate to be selfish in small things, "'if one has made the one great sacrifice.' "'And what may that be?' She asked so eagerly that he looked at her, and then saw how worn and tired her face was, and the words which he was intending to speak died on his lips. "'Look at those asses of people on toboggans,' he said brusquely. "'Could you manage to enjoy yourself in that way? That might do you good.' "'Yes,' she said, "'but it would not be any pleasure to me.' She stopped to watch the toboggans flying down the road, 
and the disagreeable man went his own solitary way, a forlorn figure with a face almost expressionless, and a manner wholly impenetrable. He had lived nearly seven years at Petershof, and, like many others, was obliged to continue staying there if he wished to continue staying in this planet. It was not probable that he had any wish to prolong his frail existence, but he did his duty to his mother by conserving his life. And this feeble flame of duty and affection was the only lingering bit of warmth in a heart frozen almost by ill-health and disappointed ambitions. The moralists tell us that suffering ennobles, and that a right acceptation of hindrances goes toward forming a beautiful character. But this result must largely depend on the original character. Certainly, in the case of Robert Allison, suffering had not ennobled his mind, nor disappointment sweetened his disposition. His title of disagreeable man had been fairly earned, and he hugged it to himself with a triumphant secret satisfaction. There were some people in Petershof who were inclined to believe certain absurd rumors about his alleged kindness. It was said that on more than one occasion he had nursed the suffering and the dying in sad Petershof, and with all the sorrowful tenderness worthy of a loving mother, had helped them to take their leave of life. But these were only rumors, and there was nothing in Robert Allison's ordinary bearing to justify such talk. So the foolish people who, for the sake of making themselves peculiar, revived these unlikely fictions, were speedily ridiculed, and reduced to silence. And the disagreeable man remained the disagreeable man, with a clean record for unamiability. He lived a life apart from others. Most of his time was occupied in photography, or in the use and study of the microscope, or in chemistry. His photographs were considered to be most beautiful. Not that he showed them specially to anyone, but he generally sent a specimen of his work to the monthly photograph portfolio, and hence it was that people learned to know of his skill. He might be seen any fine day trudging along in company with his photographic apparatus, and a desolate dog, who looked almost as cheerless as his chosen comrade. Neither the one took any notice of the other. Allison was no more genial to the dog than he was to the curehouse guests. The dog was no more demonstrative to Robert Allison than he was to anyone in Petershof. Still, they were something to each other, that unexplainable something which has to explain almost every kind of attachment. He had no friends in Petershof, and apparently had no friends anywhere, no one wrote to him except his old mother. The papers which were sent to him came from a stationer's. He read all during mealtime, but now and again he spoke a few words with Bernadine Holm, whose place was next to him. It never occurred to him to say good morning, nor to give a greeting of any kind, nor to show a courtesy. One day, during lunch, however, he did take the trouble to stoop and pick up Bernadine Holmes' shawl, which had fallen for the third time to the ground. "'I never saw a female wear a shawl more carelessly than you,' he said, 
you don't seem to know anything about it. His manner was always gruff. Everyone complained of him. Everyone always had complained of him. He had never been heard to laugh. Once or twice he had been seen to smile, on occasions when people talked confidently of recovering their health. It was a beautiful smile worthy of a better cause. It was a smile which made one pause to wonder what could have been the original disposition of the disagreeable man, before ill health had cut him off from the affairs of active life. Was he happy or unhappy? It was not known. He gave no sign of either the one state or the other. He always looked very ill, but he did not seem to get worse. He had never been known to make the faintest allusion to his own health. He never smoked his thermometer in public, and this was all the more remarkable, in a hotel where people would even leave off a conversation and say, "'Excuse me, sir or madam, I must now take my temperature. We will resume the topic in a few minutes.' He never lent any papers or books, and he never borrowed any. He had a room at the top of the hotel, and he lived his life amongst his chemistry bottles, his scientific books, his microscope, and his camera. He never sat in any of the hotel drawing-rooms. There was nothing striking or eccentric about his appearance. He was neither ugly nor good-looking, neither tall nor short, neither fair nor dark. He was thin and frail, and rather bent, but that might be the description of anyone in Petershof. There was nothing pathetic about him, no suggestion even of poetry, which gives a reverence to suffering, whether mental or physical, and there was no expression on his face. So also was there no expression in his eyes, no distant longing, no far-off fixedness, nothing, indeed, to awaken sad sympathy. The only positive thing about him was his rudeness. Was it natural or cultivated? No one in Petershof could say. He had always been as he was, and there was no reason to suppose he would ever be different. He was, in fact, like the glacier of which he had such a fine view from his room. Like the glacier, an unchanging feature of the neighborhood. No one loved it better than the disagreeable man did. He watched the sunlight on it, now pale golden, now fiery red. He loved the sky, the dull gray, or the bright blue. He loved the snow forests, and the snow-girt streams, and the ice cathedrals, and the great firs patient beneath their snow burden. He loved the frozen waterfalls, and the costly diamonds in the snow. He knew, too, where the flowers nestled in their white nursery. He was indeed an authority on alpine botany. The same tender hands which plucked the flowers in the springtime, dissected them and laid them bare beneath the microscope. But he did not love them the less for that. Were these pursuits a comfort to him? Did they help him forget that there was a time when he, too, was burning with ambition to distinguish himself? and be one of the marked men of the age? Who could say? End of chapter 5 The Disagreeable Man Recording by Amy B.